please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to begin reading with verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19 will be our text for this morning. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is... Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the title of the message today is Truth and Error Divide. But the foundation is sure. Truth and error divide, but the foundation is sure. Now, as we've been discovering in our recent studies here in 2 Timothy, this is, as we've stated so many times, this is a letter by Paul, and he's preparing a younger man, a younger minister, for a time period when the apostles would be no more. So up until this point, and that's, that's been very important in our study, uh, just like we looked at in chapter 2, when um, we looked at chapter 2 uh, in verse 2, where he told him to, the things that you've heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also, and how that's different between this period and the period after the apostles. Well, that's what Paul is doing, is preparing Timothy for a time when Paul's not going to be on the scene. So he's giving him instruction, he's telling him all these things and how the church would uh, go on after Paul and Peter and John and all of these men are off the scene. And we've said so many times, Paul is in prison as he's writing this um, and he's writing to a man who's going to kind of be his successor in the work and he's writing to him about what's going on now and what's going to go on in the future and how all of that's going to work together so it's kind of like and this this example hit home to me just a little bit it's kind of like when your kids are about to go off to college and you you need to tell them 500 things and you think 499 of them are really important you know there's just so many things how do you really even begin to sum up all the you know what would you say well what's really important for them to know for well, there's a bunch of stuff you would probably say is really important but, but Paul only, you know, got to write a few letters. So these things evidently are really, really important because these are the things that made the list that Paul is sending to Timothy of the things that are really, really important for him to know as Paul goes off of the scene and Timothy continues the work. So I think keeping that mindset as we read this and as we study this is important. It kind of gives us a different perspective on what it is that we're reading because he not only wrote this to Timothy, he wrote it to us as well as we carry on the work um, that Paul had begun in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, the things that he warned Timothy about, about possible persecution and about suffering and about 
truth in the church and about how to pass that down, what we talked about um, earlier as generational truth. All of those things are true for us just like they were for Timothy. So he's telling Timothy that he needs to be cognizant of the fact that heresy is going to come, false teaching is going to come. There's going to be all kind of problems that come both from outside and even inside the church. And he's going to do that in this passage by some negative talk, some positive talk, and then what I would say, some extremely positive talk. So you know how, what I mean by that. The negative is don't do these things or avoid this. Don't do it. Then he's going to tell him some things positive. These are, this is what you actually do. This is the opposite of that. This is the things that I want you to focus on. Then he gives him kind of the trump card at the end over the, the whole um, series of thoughts that he said. So uh, we're going to look at three points here. We're going to begin with the negative and move to the positive, and then hopefully we'll sum it up with what I called extremely positive and a very comforting uh, verse there in verse 19 at the end of our text that um, really helps us to kind of wrap all this up and, and have better understanding. So going back to our, our passage there in verse 14 through 19, uh, the first point we want to make from this is beware foolish words and false teachers. So this is things that you should avoid. Beware foolish words and false teachers. That is verse 14 and verses 16 through 18. So we're going to kind of skip over verse 15 and, and come back to it. But verse 14 and verses 16 through 18. So remember that in verse 2, Timothy is to entrust God's word. He's to teach God's word which to him was the teaching of the apostles. To us, it is the canon of Scripture, the gospel, and, and the word of God, to faithful men who will also teach others. He says in verse 14, to remind them of these things. So he's, he's not only said that in the beginning, he's also unpacked it a little. You remember we talked about some of those things. He said, focus, remember Jesus Christ. You remember those words? He said, remember Jesus Christ. That's the focus of everything you do. Center everything you do on the gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ, the son of David, was risen from the dead. Those are the important things. So he's reminding them about what all he said. And in verse 14, he said, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. So this is that first part of our point, beware foolish words. Now, we also don't need to misunderstand the Apostle Paul, and I think by the end of this you'll see that. Paul isn't saying that you shouldn't fight over words or that nothing is important or that, well, just, just don't argue with people over doctrine or over scriptures or over words. That's not important. That's not what he's saying at all, and we'll find that out in a minute because he's going to be very clear on that in our, in our next section in 16 through 18. So the Bible contains roughly around... There's different um, counts with different um, interpretations, but the KJV is right around 750,000 words. That's a lot. And you think about that a minute. 750,000 words. And every one of them in the original language was given by inspiration of God. God said they're important. So in that sense, um, those things are very important, and there is nothing that we should just take lightly or anything when it comes to that. But there are also things in the scripture that are of more importance and less importance. Um, that part's true too. And that's where the difficulty comes in. But here he's warning us, 
He says, uh, charge them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to subverting of hearers. So you and I should be willing to put up a fight about the words of the Bible. Those things are important. But that's not the kind of things that Paul's talking about here. There's important words like election, atonement, sin, righteousness, justification, propitiation. All of these things, those are all biblical words, biblical concepts. And those things are extremely important. But there's also subjects and things that really, if we argue about, probably don't edify, probably don't help the body. And in fact, can lead to uh, a lot of problems. So we're not to strive about things that are not clear in the scriptures because this can lead to indifference and disunity among God's people. Not every small topic has to be a test of fellowship or a dividing line with the children of God. That is, and it's extremely important for us to understand that because we don't want to drive people away with something that is not really of utmost importance, that is not uh, something that, but like I said, there's balance in this. Um, so there are things that are that important. So we have to really, and that's where he's going to say in the next part, I'm getting ahead of myself already. This is one of those passages where it all fits together so closely. It's hard to talk about one part without the other, but he's going to encourage Timothy. You've got to rightly divide that. Um, but right now we're talking about these things that are, are indifferent. So let's turn to a couple of other scriptures and, and see uh, what the Bible says about these things. Let's turn to Titus. 3.9, Titus 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, almost the same terminology there, for they are unprofitable and vain. But And I wasn't planning on this, but also look at verse 10 to kind of give the balance. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. So is there, is there things that are important enough? Yes, there's some things that are not. And the Bible is clearly showing us both sides of there, that here in Titus as well as over in Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy 1, in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 4. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Uh, also, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4, so Paul's definitely getting this message across to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 4, he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdrawal thyself. So once again, we kind of see the balance there of both sides of this. But the other side is, so, so there are things that are indifferent. And I would say this, if you are not, if you can't see a, a clear biblical pattern about something that's just clear, it's clear in the scriptures, it's a biblical pattern, you need to be careful about how adamant you are about that. And we don't need to say things that there's a biblical pattern when there's really not. Because that's going to cause people to really question and say, I don't know. You know, they're saying this, but I really don't see it in the Bible. So then when we do tell them something that really is there, it's, uh, it's kind of a problem. So we need to be careful about how we word things. If we say that there's a biblical pattern for something, there needs to be a biblical pattern for it. We need to be able to see it in the scriptures. Um, now, there are a lot of things that are indifferent that come down to preference. 
that come down to my opinion or my thoughts about something or just tradition or other things. And not any, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong or bad. There's a lot of things that we just do because that's the way we do it. But if it's not a biblical pattern, we need to be really, really careful about how, how hard we stand on it and how much we turn people away because of it. That is especially very dangerous. But on the other hand, however, there are words that can be extremely detrimental to the people of God. And we need to be alert and always listening and, and testing and verifying as we teach and receive things that they are thus saith the Lord. In Acts 17, uh, verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And you probably know this verse almost by heart. We, we talk about it a lot. Verse 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So we also need to have, you know, there are things that are indifferent. There are things that are just vain and we don't need to argue about and make a big deal about. I guess a, a real practical example of that would be, you know, as ministers, we love to talk about things that are controversial or that maybe are not crystal clear in Scripture. I did it this week. Brother Lewis came to our school, and, and we're in the midst of this crisis, and it, it's a tragedy. And, and a parent has committed suicide, and he was able to come in and help us counsel and did a fantastic job. And so then he and I and a couple other counselors from another uh, denomination, another church, we're all sitting around talking after it. It didn't take long for us to get on uncommon ground. And on some things, but we all had to admit we're in areas that are pretty deep and pretty, pretty varied and that we're, you know, we're getting way away from probably some things. And so there you got Lewis and I and Brother Robert on one side and then you had these other people. And it came really fast and it was interesting to me. But now if I took that to the extent that I thought, man, those are evil people and they just, these were things that were indifferent. They were things that are very deep, very difficult to talk about. So we have to understand that and not let it cause strife and contention and things like that where that it's not necessary. But on the other hand, we've got to protect and understand that what is said, as thus saith the word of God, is very important. So the, the, the Bereans, what was noble, why they're called more noble than those in Thessalonica is because they searched the scripture daily to see whether these things were so. So when someone spoke to them the word of God, they didn't just say, okay, well, Brother so-and-so said that, so that's the truth. They searched the scriptures. They made sure that those things were of the word of God. It would never hurt my feelings if you came up to me after a sermon and said, hey, you said this, and here's what I'm reading over here, and, and I'm having a hard time balancing this. Hopefully we can come to some agreement. Hopefully there's an explanation. But I promise you it wouldn't hurt my feelings because ultimately if you, if you show me something and I say, that's a really good point, hopefully I'd get up and say, Here's the correction. I've seen that done in a service. I've seen it done later. I've also seen in churches where it caused a lot of problems because it wasn't corrected. It wasn't fixed. And then half the church has heard something that's untrue and they've never been, it's never been corrected. So it's a good thing to make sure that what we teach and what we say is thus saith the word of God. Now, if every opinion in postmodernism, what we're supposed to believe is that every opinion has value. Every person's truth has merit, right? So, so we're to just listen and, and just kind of absorb it and, and, and say that's got merit and this opinion's got merit and all those things. If that was the truth, then why would Paul call out two men by name in Holy Scripture for saying that these guys are off track and y'all need to cut them off? He basically called them 
gangrene, cancer, a canker. It's something that is not welcome. It's not, you know, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said you had cancer, what do you want him to do? You want him to get rid of it. You do not want it in your body. You want it gone. You, I mean, that's, you know, I've, I've talked to people a lot with cancer, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm at sleep at night thinking there's cancer in my body. There's cancer in my body. I want it gone. And then what, what's the great, when people are healed of cancer, what's the great words that you hear? You're in remission or you're cancer-free. You're cancer-free. When you hear that word, oh, all the cancer is gone. So that's what Paul describes as these teachings of these two men. He says they're, they're like a canker. They're like a cancer. They're like gangrene. So we must always be alert and always intently listening and testing and verifying the teaching that we're receiving that it is thus saith the word of God. Acts um, 17.10 that I talked about uh, is important. There's many other verses we could go to. So every opinion is not regarded as equally valid. The only opinion that really matters is what's, what the Word of God says. And I think it's also important because I'm going to tell you that there are times where if we're doing our job as ministers, we're going to approach subjects that maybe aren't crystal clear, but I think it's, it's right for us to tell you that, to say, here's what the Word of God says and here's what I think that means. And, and this, is my, this is my opinion of this interpretation, and, it, and it's gray. And here's some other thing. I think we need to be honest in our presentation of that. So he says it's like gangrene or like a canker. The word gangrene's in the ESV. That's why I keep bringing that one up. In the KJV, it says canker. That begins, so it's like this. If you know what gangrene is, so like let's say you were in the Civil War and you got an injury in your foot. Well, it wasn't the cleanest thing in the world. These men were living out in the middle of nowhere, didn't have supplies, didn't have medicines, and so it gets infected. Well, then the infection begins to spread, and it begins to spread, and ultimately it begins to kill the flesh. So what they did for gangrene, especially during war times, is they cut your leg off. If your foot got gangrene, they'd go up a little bit to healthy flesh, and they would cut your leg off at that point. They'd get rid of it because you can't. But if not, it's going to continue to spread through your body, and it'll kill you. It will kill you. Gangrene was dangerous, and so it would, it would kill the whole body. So it's a poison. So Paul is saying these things are things to avoid. This is negative. This is something you need to rid yourself of, get, get away from it, flee from it. So it starts sometimes, and I think that's where these two things tie together so closely. So remember, we're talking about things that are indifferent, things that we don't need to strive over, things that are taking up our time that are irrelevant, and things that are super important that we need to cut off and get rid of, okay? So these two things, I think this is where they tie together a little bit. Sometimes it begins with quarrelsome, easy things that are not very important, and those things lead, lead, lead to some things that are very important, and we end up in the wrong place. And when that happens, it sours men and women to the truth and to the truly important foundational things that are actually so important. So what a solemn word that this is from Paul, and it's his dying words to Timothy, remember, beware because it's possible to stray from the truth and sometimes uh, begins by quarreling about indifferent things that can lead to full-blown heresy. So let's look at a few other texts before we move on to our next point. Acts, in the book of Acts, that'd be a great place to go about this in the early church. Acts chapter 20. Verse 28 through 30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers 
to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I'm going to pause there for a minute. If there ever was a verse that makes you really pause and, and really get the seriousness of what it is to speak in, in the, if, you know, in, to do the job of ministry and to speak in the name of the Lord, this one ought to really get your attention. Because what he's really saying here is you need to really take heed to yourself because if you're going to oversee the flock, this is the, this is the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That's the importance of it. This, this is, that really brings a seriousness to what he's about to say. Then, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, so even from within the church itself, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So in that text, he says this is going to happen. There's going to there's be things that are going to be taught that even among your own people that are heresy, that are, are not true, that are things that are going to, pull people away, uh, lead into full-blown heresy. So uh, a dire warning. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Because 1 John chapter 4 tells us a little bit about the practical side of this on how we, how we deal with it. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them we are of God he that knoweth God heareth us he that is not of God heareth not us whereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error so you see there is a this is a spiritual thing that's what we believe we believe that if if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that on those things that are most important now this, I'm, I'm going to really kind of unpack this, and this is probably dangerous, but I'm going to really unpack this. So do you believe that there are people who are not primitive Baptists that don't believe doctrine like you that are going to heaven, that are God's children? Yes, I believe that. Do I believe that they're in some error? I believe that. I believe that there's some things, there's some doctrines that they believe that I don't believe. But if they say they don't believe in Jesus, they're not going to heaven, <laughs> okay? That's a, there's a big difference in that. So when we begin to talk about what's error and what's truth, those dividing lines become on bigger, bigger, bigger things than smaller and smaller and smaller things. So we have to be careful there. But the Spirit of God is not going to allow us to believe things that are, are just heresy and completely uh, apart from. I love the title of Jack Chandler's pamphlet that he wrote many, many years ago, Is God an Idolater? God's not an idolater. God is not going to allow someone to believe and follow the religion of Buddha or follow the religion of Muhammad 
and live in, the, in that person's, that's not going to happen. He can't do that. So there are those things that are so much, so much higher. So we trust the Spirit, and we look at the Scriptures, and we say what things are most important, most true. Those things are where we uh, see this, this big dividing line between those who are really true believers and those that are not. The other sad part of this is that when I said truth and error divides, there are people that are going to leave. That's what happened in the scriptures. False teaching came in and it pulled away some. Now, this is difficult, but some of those people probably never were truly Christians. And that's why they were so easily turned aside. And, but God's the judge of that. Who knows, they may have gone aside and then later on they may have come back to the truth. God may have revealed it to them and they may have been taught and, and they may come back to the truth. But we don't know those things. God knows those things. But that's the danger. That's, the, that's what Paul is warning Timothy about in this text. Now, a couple of other places we could go to. We're going to go ahead and move on. I, I do want to go to one more. Let's go to Matthew 7 and then we'll move on to our the next section Matthew 7 verse 15 through 20 even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit every tree and that bringeth forth good fruit is not good let me start over every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them the reason i think it's important to bring this one up is that is where we are and we're going to see this later on in our last part of this text there's a there's a way that god sees and there's a way that we see god sees the heart he knows the intents of the heart he knows those that are his can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, 100% accuracy, I know that person is a believer, true believer in Jesus Christ? We can judge by the fruit. That's the answer to that question. That's what he's saying here. We judge by the fruit. We see the outward effects of the inward spirit. And so we judge by the fruit. God doesn't judge by the fruit. God knows. He knows the heart. So it's our limitation in that all we see is the fruit. I think that's important for us to understand so we we hesitate to make stern and fast judgments on things because we don't see the heart we judge by the fruit however on the other hand is it okay for us to judge by the fruit the bible says yes you know what is probably the most famous scripture for people to quote to you if you're trying to you know make a, a stand on something judge not lest ye be judged you know, they're going to come at you with that one now does the bible say that we're never to make judgments Absolutely not. We're to make judgments about all kind of things. But how we judge is by the fruit. And we need to understand our limitations in that, that we cannot see the heart. When I've talked about election before and preached on election, I've said, you know, we don't have e-goggles, right? We don't have these goggles that we put on that tell us who's elect and who's not. God didn't give us that. We judge by the fruit. So we need to remember that. So what a balanced and necessary lesson. Don't participate in dumb, unnecessary arguments that are over things that are unclear or take stands that you cannot firmly stand on the Scriptures on. However, on the other hand, flee from, cut off, destroy, take away profane and vain babblings that lead to error 
and unbelief. So that balance there we see in this text on, on both sides of that text. Now, our second point is, and this is a long one, I'm sorry, I could not boil this down into one little, one little phrase. An unashamed workman is the first part. An unashamed workman accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. In our Bible, in the KJV that we normally use here, that's called rightly dividing the word of truth. In the ESV, it says accurately handling the word of truth. Both are good. Both are good, um, I think, interpretations, different ways of looking at the same thing. I really like that wording of handling the word of truth, though. I think that's, uh, that really helps us to understand it a little bit. Now, this is in verse 15, so we'll go back to our text there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Paul is instructing Timothy now <coughs> on kind of the, the structure on how he's going to carry this out. So you got these problems, Timothy. Don't get involved in foolish genealogies and all these foolish questions and things that there's not really an answer to, Timothy. Don't waste your time is basically what he's saying. Then on the other hand, Timothy, beware of these people who are false teachers who are really saying things that are actually very detrimental. So ignore some things. Other things get really serious about Timothy. Now here's how you're going to do that. A, a true workman is going to be approved unto God, and he's going to correctly and accurately handle the word of God. So it's kind of the practical way that Timothy is going to address this problem that he's brought up in this text. And it's a matter of being a workman in the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at it in kind of three different, and I borrowed this, and I think it's fantastic. I don't mind borrowing things when they're really good, okay? I'm just going to tell you. Um, this was um, something that I found on just this verse, and he says, Paul is instructing Timothy on the manner, the method, and the matter of being a workman in the kingdom of God. The manner, the method, and the matter of being a workman in the kingdom of God. So the first one is the manner. So as to the manner of what Paul does, Paul says to Timothy, do your work, do your kingdom work, your work in the kingdom of God as you work for Christ, as you do it in such a way that when you present yourself before God, as each one of us will, each one of us will have to present ourselves before God one day, do it in such a way that you can come with a clear conscience, Timothy. He's not saying that you do a perfect work because we're not going to be able to do that. He's not saying that we don't make errors in the work. There will be. But he's saying that you do it with a good conscience. Do it as to unto the Lord so that you can come before God later and say, I did that with a clear conscience. So let me unpack that a little bit. In other words, Timothy, don't ever get up and preach something that you know and you're not confident is thus saith the word of God just because it's tradition. If you do that, you don't have a clear conscience before God. Um, you may have error. You may have things that you don't understand, Timothy, but be honest about that. Don't, don't try to teach those things uh, that are, are, thus saith the word of God, that they're not. That's not having a clear conscience. So are we going to be wrong about some things? I'm sure we are. Um, do I understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelations without error? I wish. I wish I did. I, I think I, we try very hard. I think we study. I think we do everything that we can. We pray. We ask the Spirit for guidance. But I'm sure that at times there are errors, and especially because we're sinners, I know that there are errors in the work. So 
uh, it's not perfect, and I failed you in many ways, but my heart was in the right place. I have said what I do believe is the truth. Have an accountability before God. So where is the minister's accountability? The minister's accountability is to God and to the scriptures. That's where our accountability is. It doesn't matter about what our family thinks about it. It doesn't matter what our uh, tradition says about it. It doesn't matter what our denomination says about it. It's what the, thus saith the word of God. That's our accountability. And if we begin to compromise on that, that's what Paul is talking about here. We've got to have a clear conscience before God that we're teaching thus saith the word of God and not tradition. Um, very tall order. Very difficult thing. So I'm not standing here telling you that this is easy or that this is always done. It's very, very difficult to do this. It's hard. So do your work like that. So as to the, the manner, you know, we said we're looking at these different words. As to the manner of what you're doing, um, that I think is, is really important for us to see that there's a way that we're to go about it, and that is that we're working for the Lord. When he says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. That's about having a clear conscience before God about what you're teaching. If, what, if you're holding back things that you know are true because you think it may upset somebody or somebody might not like it, you don't have a clear conscience before God. Or if you're actively teaching things that you're not settled on or sure about because that's just what's always been said, you don't have a clear conscience before God. We all, we all are guilty of that probably to some extent, but he's saying, Timothy, this is the manner in which you should do it. You should do it with a clear conscience to God. Don't worry about others. Don't worry about these men that are going to say that what you're teaching is false. You teach the truth because you're accountable to God, not to these men. So we are approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. As to the method of what he does, that's where we get to that last phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. So as to the method, the way we do that is that we accurately handle, or the King James, rightly divide the word of God. Now there's commentators or some of them say this is clearly a, a reference to the Roman culture of the day because Romans built roads and they built really straight roads. So they were known for that. So if you went from one town to another in Rome, these people were really good engineers, and they built a straight road from A to B, and it was straight, and it was on the right path, and they did it, you know. So that's what, so they're saying the road didn't meander all over the place and end up in the wrong place. It was straight from A to B. Uh, that makes sense. I think that's okay. Other people say, no, it's clearly an agricultural reference, rightly dividing, about plowing straight rows. And so there's been a lot of people who have used that example. So if, if you're plowing and you know, back in the days, they didn't have a tractor with a satellite GPS. You know, I, I was amazed by that when I moved to Greenwood. These guys get in these tractors, they put the tractor in the corner of the field, and they push a button. That's all they do. They push a button. They don't drive it. They don't touch it. They just push the button, and the tractor goes, and it knows by GPS satellite technology, it gets the most out of that field by driving in a particular way, straight rows, perfect. Every inch is covered. Well, what about if I were to get a mule right now? and a, one of those old plows, and I've never done it before. You know, the example to me is painting a football field. That may not mean anything to y'all, but have you ever seen a new coach paint a football field or a base, baseball foul line, and you're looking down there going, man, I better hit it in that spot because it's way over there, and if I hit it right here, I'm on, you know. It's like this. 
That's what the idea is, that we go straight down the middle of the scriptures. We don't veer to the right. We don't veer to the left. We correctly handle the word of God. We rightly divide the truth of the word of God. We plow straight rows. So, you know, the, the meaning of those analogies really, really is irrelevant. I think the point is very clear. It's clear that what Paul wants us to see is the underlying idea is that we've not got to get sidetracked by these things. We need to stick uh, to the more important things and hold up the main things of Scripture and rightly interpret the Bible with a view to seeing the whole Bible as the Word of God. Now, like we said, how many words? 750,000 words. So we're not talking about rightly dividing Mary had a little lamb. Okay? It's not, not, a, not a poem. It's not a one paragraph on one subject. The Bible is sufficient for all that we need to know to live godly and to please God. I think that includes a lot of things, some things that are going to be really hard and difficult and things that are not easy to talk about and some things that are gray areas and some things that are crystal clear. And, yes, all of that is true. So I'm not up here trying to tell you there's this utopian that we're going to hit it and, and everything's going to be great and we're going to always you know, be in the right path of this. But yet, Paul's telling Timothy it's important to do it, to strive for it, to push for it. So we, we do that. We don't let tradition or family or denominational pressure or even personal preference become, thus saith the word of God. We handle it correctly and are accountable to God for how we do that. So do we take firm, immovable stands where the Bible is either silent or give liberty? We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. Regardless of our tradition, if it's not the biblical pattern for real, not just because we think it, but because for real it's the biblical pattern, we don't need to stand on it. We just need to say, here's, here's what the Bible says about this. Now, what I believe about it is this, but there's, there's area for movement. Accurately handing or rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the method. That's how we go about doing this. It all is tied to the word of God. Now, the last one is the matter, and that's why I just said that. It's all tied to the Word of God. So what's the matter that we're to be about? The matter is the Word of truth, literally in the Scriptures. That's what he says. <coughs> rightly dividing, and then the next thing's going to be what you're supposed to rightly divide, right? Rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's how it's said, the Word of truth. Now, a lot of modern commentators are saying what he's really saying here is not about the whole Bible. What he's really saying here is just about the gospel. Remember our context? That's where they're getting that. The context that we have in the beginning of this chapter, what has he been hammering Timothy on over and over and over again? Go back to the gospel, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that which is most important, that Jesus Christ, the son of David, was risen from the dead. That's, go back to that. Go back to that. Remember that. Even at the beginning of our text today, of these things, put them in remembrance. Well, these things, he's talking about the first of the chapter, right? So I don't even necessarily disagree with that. The gospel should be very evident and prevalent in those things that we teach as most true. The gospel message. The gospel is weaved through the entire Bible. But that's also kind of what I would say about it, is that, you know, how can you separate the Bible and the gospel? The gospel is the Bible. From Genesis 1, did you know that Genesis 1 is about the gospel? It is. All the way through to Revelations, it's about the gospel. So I think it's kind of a, you know, it's a little bit silly to try to separate those two things. So really what he's saying here, if you say rightly dividing the word of truth, is that it, the scriptures are the authority. That this is what we stake our tent on. 
we're, we're going through our statement of faith at TCPS in our chapels, taking turns teaching on it, and my athletic director, uh, Coach Boren, he, got, he did that one on the scriptures. And he, you know, he just is so fun to watch him because he knows how important that is for these high school kids to understand that no matter what else you talk about, if you get away from the scriptures and believing that this really is the truth, it's the standard of truth in the world, all other things are going to go sideways. If you can't get to that and say this is the truth, then all other things fail. And so that's what he's telling Timothy. The, the matter of what you talk about is the Bible itself, the truth of the word of God. Make sure that you're always proclaiming the glory of God and the sinfulness of man and the grace of God and, and those things that are most important that the scriptures teach us. Make sure that you're about those things. Now, it, you know, I, I've heard people say that there should never be a message that's not just 100% about the gospel. I, that's not necessarily true in this sense, in this sense. We've got to be very careful here. We're to preach the whole counsel of God. We're to teach practical godliness. We're to teach how you're to live, too, and how you're to... Those things are really important. So when I'm saying these things, I'm not saying you don't ever, you know, teach on practical matters. You absolutely do. But it always ties back to the Word of God and be crystal clear about that. And then those things tie into the gospel as well. So I want to read you the ESV version of that, that text. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then to tie us into our last point, verses 16 through 18, also in the ESV, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among those are these two men who have swerved from the truth. I love that part, has swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happening, they are upsetting the faith of some. And that's why I wanted to that's why I wanted to read you that text. A lot of that's really good, and I like the wording until you get to that last phrase. They are upsetting the truth of some. Now the KJV says that in this way who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So if, if I told you that somebody was upset and I told you that someone was overthrown, are those the same thing to you in your mind? <laughs> Probably not. You know, we get upset over little stuff sometimes. To be overthrown? Um, I love what um, one of the ministers who was commenting on this text said. He said, that word is very misleading when it says upset. He said, if that's upset, then that means that somebody was in a boat in the middle of a lake and somebody upset it and they drowned. <laughs> You know, if you can take it in that way, then yes, that's upsetting. But it's overthrown. It is turned over. It is turned on its head. In other words, they have departed from the faith. Now, that's a difficult saying, right? To say that someone departed from the faith. So what he's saying here, Paul says, these men have come in. They've made this false teaching. And because of this false teaching, there are men and women in the congregation who have departed from the faith. They've left the faith. They left out, they went with these two men, they've departed from the faith. So that sets us up then for this last point. So as he's talking about all these things, this overthrowing of faith, this unchecked gangrene kills is what he's saying. If, if this is left unattended, then it kills and it pulls away. So we don't need to play semantics with it or, or try to deal with it in another way. It is what it is. This stuff is dangerous. 
if it is something that leads away or is anti-gospel or anti the truth of the gospel, um, then it needs to be dealt with because it will overthrow the faith of some. Now, if you're sitting here saying, now, Brother Andy's teaching that there are children of God that are going to fall away, and I'm not, I promise. Just be patient. That's why I told you the last verse is extremely important. We're going to get there. But but, but let's not just run over this as if it's nothing. So it, it literally does say that their faith is overthrown. It doesn't say what kind of faith. It just says their faith is overthrown. Unchecked uh, problems like this will lead to a division, a, a pulling away. Now, deal with it for what it is. So what are some of those things that we might see? Well, it's, it's my uh, punching bag, and I understand that, but I'm going back to it again. Conditional time salvation is not a terminology issue. Okay? There's some people in the Primitive Baptist that like to say, oh, it's not a big problem. It's not a big problem. It's a terminology issue. We really all believe the same thing. It's just a terminology issue. That is putting lipstick on a pig. It is a big issue. It is a gospel issue. It is of the most important things of the gospel. It's not a terminology issue. We need to call it what it is. And it is upsetting. It is overthrowing the faith of some. Um, CRT, conditional I mean, a critical race theory. Uh, we haven't dealt with that a lot in our church, but I'm telling you, it's a big problem in the churches in America right now. And it is a gospel issue. It is not just a race issue. It is not just a philosophical issue. It is a gospel issue. And it is leading men and women, some that have been in the faith, it's leading them astray. And we need to be serious about that. We need to not play games with it. That is not an indifferent matter so those are just some examples of these things so then like i said you know you if we stop there then i'm probably leaving doubts in your mind is well what does brother andy believe does he really believe that false teachers can come in and take true children of god and overthrow their faith and and it's a shipwreck and and they're gone forever and it's because we didn't do the right thing and teach the right thing and no that's not at all what i'm saying so let's read the last part of our text and we'll kind of sum sum up this whole thing Nevertheless, so if you hear that word, what do you got to do? You kind of go back and say, okay, he's been saying all this, but now he says, nevertheless, in spite of all these things that I've just told you, kind of what that means, um, just because I've been saying all these things, there's another truth that you need to know. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And... Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He says, okay, so all that I've told you is true, but nevertheless, there's two things that you need to understand to interpret this correctly. Two things. The foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knows them that are his, and those who are his flee from iniquity. They depart from sin. That's that's the two things. Them that are his knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, depart from iniquity. So what does that, what does that mean and how does that tie into what, what we've talked about? Well, if false teachers like these two men can slip into the church and start overthrowing the faith of some, what are we supposed to do? So Paul goes all the way back to the bedrock foundational truth for Timothy's confidence and for our confidence in the ministry of the word God's firm foundation still stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. Timothy, when you fret about how much sin and how much false teaching there is in the church, as you're visiting churches, 
remember this double-sided seal. It's a two-sided. It's, all, it's been said a lot that it's kind of like a coin. You know, tonight at the Super Bowl, they're going to flip a coin. Somebody's going to call heads or tails, right? Um, tails never fails, in my opinion. I always go with that, right? But they're going to call it, and there's two sides of that coin, and it's going to fall on one side or the other. Well, they've said a lot that in this concept, it's kind of like a two-sided coin. So there's the divine side, and there's the side of, of man's view. There's God's view and man's view. God's view is that God knows them that are his. He knows, he knows them. That foundation is sure. God knows. And then on our side, those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We, we judge the fruit. Okay, so we've kind of already introduced this a little bit. Like I told you, it's hard to talk about this at all without getting it all mixed up. But on the divine side, the Lord knows those who are his. We can't see their hearts, but God can. There's no question in God's mind. He knows his own. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, hoping that proper teaching is taking place in the church so that men will be persuaded to allow him to save them. That is not the God of heaven. God knows them that are his, and he will get his message to them despite the sinfulness of the ministry, despite our error. Like I told you, nobody's going to do that perfectly, none of us. But despite all of that, the foundation of God stand as sure. It's not going to be on my account that God lost one of his because I didn't rightly divide the word of truth. The foundation of God stands sure. It is, it is you can take it to the bank. He knows them that are his. And then on the human side, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You will know them by their fruit. So we also don't go into hyper-Calvinism, fatalism, and say, well... The foundation of God stands assured. doesn't matter how I live. That's all irrelevant. True children of God will depart from iniquity, and we judge by the fruit. We'll see that in their life. It may be a struggle. It may be times when they're winning more battles. There may be times when they're losing some battles. But they're going to continue to fight and continue to, to um, fight against sin, and we will know them by their fruit. So let's go to a couple of scriptures. In Philippians Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2, <coughs> verses 12 and 13. And this was interesting, too, because this is also where he even says, you know, I told you he's preparing Timothy for a time when he won't be around. Well, listen to this. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And if we just stop there, Man, that would be a tough one for us to swallow for what we believe. But it doesn't stop there. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we're to strive against sin. We're to push against sin. But ultimately, it's God that's going to get the victory in us. It's God that, so it's the two sides of the same coin. Uh, also, Philippians 1.6, I can't not, I'm so close, I had to go to that one. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. God is not going to allow your faith to be totally and finally overthrown. It's not going to happen to a child of God. He's going to keep you. Uh, his work will continue in you, and he will draw you to himself. And then lastly, First um, Peter 1, 5, which really uh, kind of unpacks what I just said a little more. We'll turn over there. First Peter 1, 5 who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we are kept 
by the power of God through faith. So your faith is kept by the power of God. It's not you. And that's such a big difference of what we believe than so many other Christian denominations believe. Our faith is not just ours. It's not something we came up with on our own. That's why we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's going to keep you in the faith is because it's not, in a sense, it's not your faith. It's a faith that was a gift of God given to you, and he will uh, keep it by his power. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Last one, Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 9, 1 through 9. This will kind of sum us up here. Second Peter 2, 1 through 9. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. So same subject as we're hearing in Timothy, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. They'll be overthrown. Uh, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So you see, why, you say, why do you read that? Because that's ultimately what Timothy's saying here in this last verse. God knows them that are his, and he reserves judgment, and he knows how to separate. Uh, out of, remember, Lot, how many just men were in that city? And we don't really know, but I mean, we probably can't say about a shadow of death. The only one we know about is Lot, right? So the, the number kept going down when he was, you know, talking to God about it. The number kept going down. He said, there's not even that many. <laughs> you know, I'm going to judge the city. But did God leave Lot there? No, he, he got him out. He pulled him out. So God knows them that are his, and those that are his will flee from iniquity. They will uh, go the other way. They will uh, turn from it, and that will be the general pattern of their life. They're going to have, like we said, victories and defeats in that, but from our, from our human perspective, that is how we have to see it. We have to judge by the fruit, and the fruit is that we flee from iniquity and those things that are sin. Now, just want to spend just a moment to kind of put all of this in context with the bigger picture of our text in chapter 2. So you remember way back in the beginning of the chapter, back in 2 Timothy, we started in verse 2 by talking about committing the truth to faithful men who will also teach others. So we talked about generational truth by multiplica multiplication. Then we talked about how to endure hardness. He said, Peter, he told Timothy, Paul told Timothy, you better be prepared to suffer because of this great work that you're called to because that's the cost. If you're going to live for Christ, you're going to suffer. And the more you live for Christ, the more suffering you'll probably see in your life. Third, 
He said, remember Jesus Christ. The son of David is risen from the dead and he reigns over the world forever. Remember that. Go back to that. When, when things start to get out of hand, Timothy, and there's all these other things going on, there's a, go back to that. Remember that. Go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Then he's talked about how that preachers may be bound, but the word of God is not. I think that ties in so clearly with what we talked about this morning. The limitations of the ministry are there's no problem for God. The word of God is not bound. God has his elect in this world, and you must be willing to suffer all things for the elect's sake. Then God cannot deny himself. We talked about last time. Trust him and your salvation is as sure as God's commitment to his own name. You think about that for a minute. Our salvation is just as secure as God's commitment to his own name and his own glory because God has said it, and therefore his name is on the line. You know, when I go up to somebody and shake their hand and say, I'm going to do this, um, that's my word. I'm telling you, that's my word. It's on my name. God has said he's going to do this. So our salvation is just as sure as God's commitment to his own name. And then what we learned today, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity through all of the difficult things through the sorting through the gray and the black and the white through sorting through things that are indifferent and things that are of utmost importance as we do all of that work we just have to remember god knows them that are his and it's our job to depart from iniquity just do our best have a clear conscience before god in how we handle the word of god now i didn't mention this when i was going through and i've got to go backwards i know it's a little bit out of out of place but i just missed it a lot of this sounds like he's talking to just Timothy as a minister. Did you know that you should also seek to be a workman approved unto God, handling the, the, the word of truth? You're, you need to have a clear conscience before God in your personal life with the scriptures as well. So I'll just make an example. If you're a young person and you know that the Bible says this or this or this is wrong, and I'm just going to use a, one that's really a big issue today. If you know that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong, and it's a sin, it's not a lifestyle, it's not a choice, it's not something that's an indifferent matter, God has said it's an abomination. And then you make excuse for that, you cannot have a clear conscience before God. So even though you're not a minister, you're a child of God. And so we need to have a clear conscience before God. It's not just to the ministry. This message is for all of us, that we all have a clear conscience before God in how we handle the word of God. May the Lord bless us and keep us in that and make us uh, aware of those things that are most important so that we don't get sidetracked on issues uh, that are detrimental, that bring disunity and, and pull us away from those things that are most sure. Hope those things have been a blessing to you today.